you believe we've done 60 of these? No. No, me neither. I can't believe they haven't said anything to us for 60 of these. I was pretty surprised when we made it through one. Yeah, that was a couple years ago now. Copenhagen. Man alive. Uh Uh-huh. That was when you had that giant beef jerky from South Africa. Biltong. Biltong. Some good stuff. Yeah. Yep. Hi, I'm George Tekmachev here with Steve the Anderson, and we're back for Easton podcast number 60. Why, yes, yes it is. Jay told me himself. Must be true. Do you think we'll ever make it to 100? No. But we'll try. Maybe. You never know. I'm just be happy to be if we're done with 60. Yeah, I mean, 100 is conceivably 18 months away. Uh-huh. Yeah, possibly. We'll see. Just kind of take it as it goes, which is what we've been doing all along. Yep. Hey, we've got some questions from uh, from listeners, but before we do that, let's talk about what you've been up to. Um, last time we talked, which was two podcasts ago because you weren't here for the last one, which we had with Dick Tone, uh, you were getting ready for Worlds and still are. Yeah, I guess. So what's in the uh, what's in the Steve Anderson training plan? Um, just, you know, just put some arrows in. World Championships isn't going to be one because I shot a million arrows. It'll be it'll be one between the ears. So yeah, that's need it. to be strong enough to go and make good shots. And realistically, I could probably not touch my bow from today until we start down there. And um, yeah, I might not qualify as well because of that. But by by the time we get to elimination day, I'll be shooting as good as I normally do. So I'll try to uh, practice often leading up to that and then um maybe i'll be just you know a slight bit better maybe what it what i'll need who knows mexico city is the venue um any news from down there how are, how are people doing in general you know, my understanding is people are returning back to normal lives you know it's uh sadness you can't you know when you when you hear about tragedy there's there's two types one that invokes anger you know i was just at the 9-11 memorial actually and and a tragedy like that invokes some anger you know you're, you're pissed off that people do stuff like that and then then there's a, a tragedy from mother nature and you know what do you do you, you get sad yeah so it's, it's it, no you, one to you, be mad at you, you do get angry when people cause things like we've just recently had and you uh you just i guess some people respond with feeling helpless when you have a natural disaster like in mexico city but one of the right I guess one of the nice things is that the um, the event that's coming up is seen as a positive thing um, by the folks there, and they're happy to have the world championships still go on, and World Archery is committed to having a great event, so maybe it'll be uh, helpful in, yeah. in the big scheme of things. I, I think it will. It'll be um, a bit of a return back to normal for a lot of people there, maybe, for the people involved with it. Uh, I don't think anything could have been worse than to – cancel the event which was never really on the table no there was people emailing me you know obviously because of my connections in mexico asking if it was going to be safe to go i said you know what i I think uh there's nothing i'm worried about post-earthquake that i wasn't worried about pre-earthquake and uh there were some people who posed that maybe there would be desperation amongst some of the Mexican citizens and maybe that would lead to safety concerns and I said you know what I've seen 
the news and in Florida, I saw people looting. In Houston, I saw people looting. I didn't see anything from Mexico. No, you saw looting. you saw people in Mexico pulling together and helping yep, each other. Exactly. So very admirable. I'm I'm not concerned about anything one bit. Yeah, it's so, a, it's a great reflection of the culture, you know. Right. Very cool. All right. Um, so between now and then, work on what's between the ears and and uh, and and work up on maintaining that confidence. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think if. Uh, if it's a straight shooting match, it's going to come down to you know having a, a bracket that helps you advance as far as you can, and you know if there's wind involved, then try to shoot strong as you can through the wind. But it, uh, in the end, I, I see this going through some of the usual suspects. I mean, I think if you want to win this, you're going to have to beat probably two or three top level shooters. You're probably going to run into one in the quarters for sure in the semis and then in the finals. So wh whoever wins is going to, you know, probably have to gut it out. Shift gears a little bit here. Um, when we talk about archery legends in our sport, do you have a list of people that come to your mind? No. <laughs> yeah, there there is. Yeah, but my my list because of my, you know, beginning of participation is probably a lot different than others. Sure. So... A lot of people um, tend to gravitate toward looking at uh, Olympians and, you know, therefore top recurve shooters. And I think if you had a list of legendary shooters in our sport, they might include people like um, Daryl Pace, for sure, you know, Archer of the Century. Um, you know, people like Rick McKinney, people like uh, Jay Bars. I would say that um, Justin Hewish might be among those shooters. And I would say that we'd have a number of uh, people like Allison Williamson with tremendous longevity in the sport. Um, Kim Soon-Young, of course, from Korea. And uh, Kibo Bay today. And another one is Butch Johnson, who mm -hmm. has been in this sport for five decades, actually six decades now, which is a remarkable thing. Five Olympic Games. And so uh, this sport will kill me before I reach six decades. <laughs> you know, Butch. This podcast would kill me before I get to a decade. I think no. I hope it's not that bad. <laughs> it could be, but um, you know, think about it. This guy, Butch Johnson, he shot a recurve as a kid, got disqualified from shooting at the Olympic trials in 1976 because he'd shot in an IFAA world championship you know back got, then it was part of the got totally shut down if you shot in somebody else's world championship you weren't eligible for a FIDA event cool you know it was like amateurism was in its in its heyday back yeah. then then when he saw that the uh, you know then he switched to compound shot compound with release and then switched to compound with fingers and shot both at a really high level you know a, basically a Steve Anderson level for many years and then um, so he was all right. He just got lucky a lot. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. No. <laughs> Actually, unlike you, he he um, was obsessed with just shooting. So spends all his time shooting, right? If he's not working, he's shooting. If he's not shooting, he's working. So that that was his, his deal. Um, just volume, 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 volume. Um, and then he sees the dream team, you know, the basketball guys, get accepted for Barcelona. And he goes, well... Maybe it's time to pick up a recurve. So let's talk with Butch Johnson for the next few minutes and see what it took to get there. 
All right, so we're here with archery legend Butch Johnson. Hey, Butch, how you been? Very good, thank you. Yourself? All right. You know, it's been a while since you and I have had a chance to talk. I'm uh, I'm hearing good things about what you're doing out there, uh, coaching and, and all the work you're doing, and there's going to be a lot of uh, questions that have come in from some of our Facebook listeners, so might as well just uh, kind of jump into, you know, who is Butch Johnson and 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 how did he become such an archery legend? And um, you know all that sort of thing is a lot of the. Uh, <laughs> but here's the deal, Butch. You you got to have some of the best high performance longevity of any shooter uh, in in maybe history. And, you know, from the standpoint of being on top of your game for so long, and so it comes down to a lot of questions about what did you do in terms of your training program and. How did you keep motivated so strong over the years and everything else? But I think we can get there by maybe talking about your background and starting that way and then working our way into high-performance archery from there. Okay. All right, so let's start out by you know talking about how you got started in the sport, for one thing. Well, as a kid, I you know had the basic toy fiberglass bows and cheap arrows and just kind of had interest but had no idea what I was doing. And a local shop had opened up in the town I lived in, and I went down to try it, and been doing it ever since. Yeah, well, that's that's taking uh, uh, you know five decades of archery and putting it in a real short nutshell. But uh, did you have a coach <laughs> when you started out? I mean, was it was it? Yeah, the owner of the shop, his name is John Jones. Um, he was a babo shooter. I think he had switched to sights at that time, but you know he was a. New England champion bow shooter, and he just helped me out, got me started, you know, you know, got me going on the semi-right track early on. So, so that got you um, maybe out of the uh, having to break bad habits later, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, definitely helped. I mean, just from then to now, there's so much more knowledge. You know, the learning curve back then, nobody really didn't know how to tune bows, at least in this area. You know, so it was a lot of it, just experimenting and, you know, playing around, trying to make things work better. Sure. So, and you know, trying to make you work better, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of, the, one of the things is, of course, people don't realize maybe, um, some of our listeners, of course, are very familiar with your, your history as a shooter, but you started out as a recurve shooter. Yes. And then you yep. picked up a compound later, which you shot with fingers yep. and release at a very high level. Yep. yep. And then in 92, you um, switched, before 92, you switched to uh, Olympic recurve. So let's talk right. a little bit about the three archery careers of Butch Johnson. Maybe there's more, but there's at least three that I know <laughs> of. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the questions we got in on our, on our Easton Target Facebook came from our good friend Mike Leiter, you know, who you know very well. Okay, yep. You know, he yep. used, to, used to shoot with Mike a lot, and he says, you know, Butch is truly a legend. My question for Butch is that there was a time when we shot against each other in Compound Unlimited. Did you ever think back and wonder how dominant or successful you would have been if you'd concentrated solely on that style? And he says, of course, if I had his talent and could compete in as many Olympics as he has, I would have followed his career path too. <laughs> but but, but how, do you ever think about it? I mean, if you if you just chose to stick with Compound Unlimited, that is, you know, release and uh, and scope and all that? Well, I mean, I honestly planned on staying that way once I went to it. And, um, actually, uh, what happened years ago, the Atlantic city tournament had one year that you basically had to shoot fingers and I had always loved that tournament. So I went to it and shot fingers and enjoyed it. 
Um, but you know, it's then shortly after that, the, the profession, the PAA, um, let, they let, um, compounds in, but you had to shoot fingers. And that seemed to be at the time, the direction to go. So for professional archery, they were the bigger ones at the time. So I went that way and started shooting fingers again and enjoyed it, had a good time. And I just, I really enjoyed shooting the fingers. I, you know, found it to be a lot more challenging, a lot more rewarding. I mean, not that compound releases and challenging by any means. It's just, there is more to go wrong with fingers. So in essence, it's definitely, I would say a little more challenging. You know, I, uh, um, I always felt like it gave you a closer connection to the bow or to the shot on that level. Yeah, exactly. Well, like to me with the compound release, my mentality was I shouldn't miss. So, you know, if I didn't miss, okay, I did what I was supposed to do. Where the recurve, you know, you're going to get some misses. You're going to have misses. So in turn, you know, you, you have a good day, you feel good about it versus you have a good day with compound. You just feel like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. This yeah. is kind of my mentality on it a sure, little bit. Sure. And just as an aside, uh, on a personal note, uh, you don't remember this, but I sure do. I actually first met you at the Atlantic City Classic in, I think it was 87. And you were shooting with wow. uh, with uh, Eric Hall and with uh, Tim Strickland, and and there's a story that we're not going to get into, but <laughs> <there's>, <laughs> it was an interesting, it was a great experience meeting you there. So, you know, you were one of those guys that you know everybody was like, oh, Butch Johnson and Daryl Pace, and you know, I mean, you know, in your categories, right, in your respective categories, and yep. uh, so for for an Eastern shooter to meet Butch Johnson at that event was a big deal. Um. In the case of fingers and compound, it had to have greased the skids when you decided to go back to recurve. Well, I mean, it's a long story, but going back, I always we, we do have time. Goal. We we got time for long stories. So, <laughs> okay, I had to, you know, my as a kid, I had a goal, a dream of going to the Olympics, like a lot of young kids do, and I was kind of on that track. I was going for the '76 Olympics, and I went to a tournament that was, it was a IFAA world championship, but at the time there was a lot of politics going on and it wasn't sanctioned by FIDA, which I guess there was a rule just passed FIDA being now world archery. Um, anyway, there was a lot of politics going on and they passed some rules saying that you couldn't shoot in any world or international championships unless sanctioned by them. Right. And, but that rule had just been passed the week before, and, you know, nobody heard about it. There was no internet, so information didn't cut out really slowly. And, you know, when it came around, you know, I got a letter saying I was disqualified. I'm like, why? You know, we're shooting for medals against all of the recurve arches. What's I doing wrong? You got that from you know, the NAA for money. Yes. From, um, like, probably so I called from Clayton up. Shank. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I actually called him up. And honestly, he was about as rude as you could get to an 18 year old kid. Mm. Um, I called him up and I just say, I got this letter. What do you, what, what does all this mean? As far as I'm concerned, you're out and he hung up the phone on me. Wow. And at that, at that point, you know, I actually had a lawyer that was willing to fight it for free because he had kind of got screwed over by amateur rules in his sport at one point in time. And, but he said, quite honestly, this could go past the Olympics. At that time, I was so sick and tired of the Olympic rules and all the stuff you couldn't do because of it. 
I just said, heck with it, and picked up a compound. And then in 92, when they let the basketball players in, or what, 91, fall the 92 games, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like, oh, I'm going to just get a bow and, you know, try shooting it for the trials. I had no expectation of making the team because I'd only really practiced with it for a couple months. And, you know, I just expected to go there, find out what it's all about, and see if I enjoyed it. And next thing I was on the team and had no idea what to do. (laughs) (laughs) You were on the team with Butch, uh, you as Butch Johnson and Jay Bars and Rick McKinney. Yep. And, and, you know, that was your first Olympic team um, and and your your comeback to Olympic archery, and you haven't left since, much to the chagrin of some of us. Just kidding. (laughs) No, but, you know. Well, in the following year, I did go back to compound for one more year, Mm -hmm. compound fingers, because there was just a lot of my friends that were still doing it that I'd known, but that division was basically slowly dying. So after that one year, I'm like, okay, I want to, I really want to win an Olympic medal. I'd like to go again, you know, so I just got serious. Well, it, it certainly paid off because... Yeah, no regrets there. Yeah, well, no, because uh, as, as many people know, of course, in 1996, you uh, helped lead the team to their gold medal uh, victory. Um, and, you know, um, as an Olympic gold medalist, um, you then continued that momentum into the Sydney Olympic Games. And then again, you know, I mean, total of five Olympic Games, right? Yep. So... I mean, it's a it's a remarkable record um, with you know an Olympic bronze, Olympic gold. I mean, just a tremendous accomplishment, and it all started, um, you know, with just a love of the sh- uh, love of the sport, and it's a great inspirational story. But let's let's talk about the nitty gritty of going from compound to recurve because you're probably the only guy who's really truly been completely successful at doing that, with perhaps um, a few exceptions, Brady among them, because Brady used to be a lot of people don't realize a top compound guy too but unlike unlike uh, Brady you shot fingers and my recollection because that that by that point you know I was working with you a little bit on equipment stuff and and helping a little bit with some ideas that we were trading back and forth through the through that period of time in the 90s Um, you kind of made the bow behave like a compound um, initially you were the first guy to put a Sherlock on a on a recurve and you were the first guy to put heavy weight toward the bottom of the bow to make it behave a particular way you want to talk about that a little bit well it was just the balance i had been used to and the feel i've been used to um learning to shoot the recurve was quite the challenge uh, you know when you use the compound your muscles aren't developed enough so because you know at holding weight you're holding a lot less weight so I mean, that was the hardest thing, getting used to the weight, developing, and trying to develop form and technique without screwing up. I mean, I went, I was probably the lightest poundage bow for men on the field at that Olympics in 92, just because I couldn't really handle much more weight. Um, so, but, you know, it was a good experience, and I you know, did reasonably well, considering my limited um, experience with the recurve, so. One of, the, uh, one of the questions we got came from a, a fellow by the name of Andy, who's a regular listener of our podcast in Australia, and he wants to know, what's the history of the famous two-finger release, and how did you discover you only needed two to beat most people? <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, when I first started shooting archery, uh, even with the recurve, I used to have a lot of trouble with that finger slipping off the string, but I just kept kind of dealing with it. And when I went to compound, because the bow being 
shorter with the, you know, more string angle, I think it was just couldn't hang on to the string. Yeah. Just the way it felt comfortable to too, me. Too so tight I just of an angle. said, heck with it, eliminated it. Um, and now with the recurve, you know, it's, it's just there, you know, and I feel in a way I feel it's a little bit an advantage, um, because not having a lot of finger on the string, that bad release typically isn't as bad. Mm-hmm. I think I get away with a little bit more than I would if I had three fingers hooked a lot on the string. Why did you decide to go yeah. top and bottom instead of uh, two fingers under like a lot of folks used to do back in the day? That's just the way I'd always done it from when I first started. Just worked out that you way. You know, I just maybe I it, I used, you know, I've always had a fairly high elbow. I kind of, over the years, realized why I'd done it. But, um, you know, and that was helped to get me in line. But with the high elbow, that bottom finger just became shorter. Yeah, sure. I just didn't want to reach the string. So that's basically why that one's always come off. It's always a little dangerous to talk about somebody's technique in too much depth, but, uh, you know, it does look often in the past like you're kind of racing the clicker because the string seems to be moving in your fingers at the same time that you're pulling through the clicker. Does that seem that way well, to you? I've had that problem. <laughs> um, you know, in a, in a perfect world for me, it slides a little bit and then it kind of stops without me actually causing it to stop. You know, I just have enough hook where it gets hung up a little bit, then I can get the shot off. So, I have had problems in the past where some reason my fingers decide to relax a little more. And yeah, it was like, okay, is click on click or is the arrow going to go first? Um, and, you know, it's a problem I've just fought through over the years. So it's one of the downsides to doing that. But then there's upsides too. And when it's working well, it's usually working really well. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. One of the you know one of the things a lot of folks don't realize maybe because it's it's stuff that happens behind the scenes it doesn't happen in front of the cameras is how much effort you really actually put in. Um, you and I were resident athletes in San Diego in the nineties, and I remember shooting with you an awful lot. And um, maybe just reflect a little bit on how much effort you were putting in, giving up your job basically, flying out to the East Coast, staying at the Olympic Training Center. Um, People say, well, that's not really sacrifice, You're, you know, but it is. And and I just would like to touch on that just a little bit. How much effort, how much time, how many arrows per week? What it took well, to get you? Well, I mean, to start with, like, going out to training center, I, I think I was only there for five or six months. Um, that year they had trials. Unfortunately, they're over the winter period. Yeah, there were there three, a couple three of separate trials. The winter, and with the events being in the wintertime living in the northeast you can't shoot outside and i really wanted to make the team so yes you know i you know gave up you know basically took a leave of absence from work and um went went out there to train um you know of course my wife was at home and you know it's like yeah you kind of give up your life and your friends you don't see you know you have friends out there but it's just not your normal life by any means no and you know, it was once I made the team, the weather was good. So I flew back home, basically went back to work. But, you know, my typical life has been when I'm not at work, I've been shooting. You know, I don't, I didn't take a lot of days off. Rarely did I take a day off. Probably should have taken a little more here and there. But, you know, I would shoot, get up in the morning because I worked. I had to leave for work at noon. I worked till back then about 10 o'clock at night. So, um, you know, I would get up in the morning, I would shoot, run, jump in the shower, go to work. And then my days off, you know, sometimes I'd spend 10, 12 hours outside shooting, working on equipment, 
doing whatever. Now, now part um, of this was so, that you, you built your house with a range, right? Yeah, I built the house, you know, so I could shoot archery. Um, I, you know, looked around for enough land where I had 90 meters at the time, no problem. And, you know, just, yeah, I just kind of lived my life around archery. It's just, I think part of my longevity and part of what works well for me is the fact that I'm just, I love the sport. I love shooting arrows. I'm still shooting almost every day. I'm not shooting as many arrows. I'm having a little more fun with it right now because it's, like I go out and if it's a real hot day, I don't shoot much or I might shoot inside. You know, I don't have to sit out there and sweat for hours. But, you know, that being said, I'm, I've got a little secret goal that, you know, we'll see what happens in a few years. <laughs> I like that idea. Secret goal. We'll yeah. see. <laughs> you know, one of the questions, well, you just answered a question. Just being, honestly, on. the goal is to be real competitive at the next trials. Maybe not make the team. It's, you know, I have issues with my eyes now i can see distance but i can't see close so i have uh, sight aperture problems i understand um, that. i'm in certain lights i'm still shooting very competitive with them guys but you know i'm working on different things trying to find a solution so far to no avail but i've found some sight apertures that work better than others for me i've been making a lot of different ones i have a wave at home and milling machines so i, I make get a vision i go make it and, you know try to you know, and I bought those things for archery to make little sights, brackets for my compounds, whatever I needed. And just, that's why I have them. You know, my wife has been around archery. Yeah. And, and you did and tinker in, a in fair turn, you, In turn, you know, I, there's certain things I didn't get to do. I honestly hadn't had a vacation until I think this year, you know, forever, you know, because all my time off from work, which was a lot of times, was at archery tournaments. So, you know. You know, you give up some stuff, but it's the sport I love, and it you know keeps me active. And, and to a degree, it's not the most active sport in the world, but <laughs> no, but you know, I mean, uh, you, it is you physical do... and gets you outside and walking and yeah. or limping in your case. Back in '96 uh, during the yeah, trials back process, when I had the broken you... ankle. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you were you were still we still couldn't beat you. <laughs> like, what do we got to do? Break his other leg? <laughs> <laughs> the arms would work better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, that does answer the question that we got from Steve Yee, which is what is the biggest driving factor that drives your longevity in this sport? What keeps you going day after day, year after year? You answered that. It's the love of the sport. Yeah. Yeah, I just like shooting arrows. I mean, this year I plan on doing my, my goal now. I haven't done it in a while. I'll go to NFA Outdoor Nationals. I have multiple divisions to choose from, so I'm not sure which, what style I'm going to shoot there, but it's just something I haven't done in years. So I figured I'll go do that. You know, I'll still mostly shoot the recurve, but I may go there with a compound. I may shoot bow hunter. I have no idea at this point, but I do know I want to go. It's on the east coast of Pennsylvania, so it makes it a little easier for me. So. One, of the, uh, one of the things a lot of folks maybe don't know is that besides, of course, having achieved as much as you've done on your own in the sport, you've also helped other people achieve great things. You've coached a lot of notable shooters and, um, you know, part of an important Joed program at Hall's Archery for many years. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and um, maybe reminisce a little bit about some of the shooters, uh, like Karen Scavato, for example, who you've influenced and have helped uh, get to a high level. Yeah, I mean, Karen, she came in the range. She couldn't even see over the counter. She was so small. She was a very small eight-year-old when she started shooting, um, but she just had the drive, which is what you need, I feel, to be 
you know, very successful in this game. You just got to have the love of the sport and you want to do it. And she had that. And it was nice to see somebody that, you know, had that drive. And it was um, something that uh, also motivated you um, from a coaching standpoint to have, you know, a large group of kids who were very enthusiastic about the sport, I think. Yeah, you know, definitely. I mean, I definitely enjoy, like, I don't mind. I like coaching the more advanced kids, the beginning kids. You know, it's, I don't mind doing it, but it's not what I enjoy the most. Um, but the more advanced kids is trying to help them, you know, get everything you can out of the kid. Um, but the problem is, like, I've coached some kids that had a lot of talent. One girl, I can't think of her name offhand, years ago, she made junior use at, but her problem was she just didn't have the mental game. You know, she would typically get her under a lot of pressure, she'd fall apart. Yeah, very hard to um, teach that uh, to somebody. Yeah, I mean, that's something some people have, and I feel it's kind of a, you just got to learn, like, a, there's a kid at work that's got a lot of talent now, he's actually working at the shop, and, you know, he has some good potential, but, you know, he's got some, you know, mental game issues, you know, and I said, you got to learn just to, you got to be able to shut distractions off on an instant and get back to what you're doing. How did you know, you... I can remember in 96, the first time, I think that was the first time I shot with the big, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, big screen. Oh yeah. You... Yeah. We had the big TV screen there. Yeah. And you know, I'm drawn back in full drawer and, I could see it out of color of my eye, not paying attention, but, you know, somehow I picked up that, hey, there's me on the screen. Well, you got to get right back to focusing on what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And there can be distractions. I had camera guys walk in front of me like they weren't supposed to, but they literally stepped in front of the shooting line while I'm at full draw to get a better angle. Well, it distracts you, but you have to make that shot. You've got to learn to refocus and just deal with it. And some people can, some can't. You know, you're kind of the poster boy for for shrugging off distraction because infamously uh, at the 96 Olympic Games in Atlanta, just as you were about to go out to, was it the 116th elimination? I can't remember which one it was. but Uh, Yes, it was. Yeah, just as you step out, a volunteer um, pushed on the awning. You know, there's a vinyl awning above the athlete tunnel, and it had accumulated a large amount of water. It was pouring rain. And they dumped maybe 10 gallons of water on you in one shot just as you stepped out there. Which made for uh, one of those moments where your jaw just drops and you go, did that really just happen? And you just, <laughs> and you just stepped out there and got up there and did your thing and, and shot. And, you know, I mean, you were drenched and it was not particularly um, fair to have something like that happen. But you got up there and you didn't pitch a fit. And you made a great example of grace under pressure under those circumstances. There's a fantastic photograph, um, which is one of the first things you see if you take the tour of Easton, uh, that Yoshi Komatsu, our uh, friend that uh, publishes Japan Archery Magazine, um, took of you. And it, it, it's the vapor trail of your arrow leaving the bow because everything is so wet that the water droplets stayed in place when the arrow was gone. It just makes an awesome photo. You, Of course, you're familiar with this. Yeah, it was... Yeah, yeah, really cool pitch. I got a lot of comments on that one. It may be the coolest. I mean, that was like, that rain was about as heavy as I've ever shot in. Yeah. And I can remember, I was shooting a sight ring at the time, and I remember drawing back one time and speaking of distractions, you know, I stopped to aim, but, 
the drops were so big, they're hitting my sight ring and they're kind of splashing up in the air like a little fountain. Yeah. And it was like, you know, I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm supposed to be shooting. Yeah. You know, so, you know, you got to, like I said, you just have to refocus and do what you got to do. And it, it's something that I think it's either in here or not. It, it's a hard one, I think, for a lot of people to, you know, develop per se. Yeah. But but just to not to belabor it because I know it was probably not the most pleasant experience. But how did you? What was your mindset when that water hit you, just as you're walking out there? What, uh, what like you, what the hell first? <laughs> um, you know, it's like it just you know it, it as it happened. You know, I knew what happened, and it's like okay, I can't believe that person did that. But you know, I got to be on the line in ten seconds and shooting, so just keep walking. And I remember stepping on the line and I could feel, you know, a lot of water just running down my back and down my legs, like in the inside of my pants, just, I was so soaked, Yeah, you know, and it just, you know, okay. <laughs> what did Put you, the arrow on the bone, shoot. What did, what were you yeah. thinking in terms of, um, I mean, your tab was one of those things. I, were you shooting a hair tab at the time? I was shooting a hair tab at the time, which is definitely a lot better in the rain. So that, you know, didn't bother me too much, but you know, like, so the rain was just, it was a difficult rain and yeah. getting the extra dosing didn't help things. No, but, but okay. So you're stepping on the line. It's raining like crazy. Like you pointed out, it's probably the heaviest rain you've ever shot in. And what are you thinking from the standpoint of your aim point? Are you firing for effect or are you going to shoot a shot and, uh, aim off right from the start? Well, I aimed off right from the start. It just wasn't enough. And it's like, okay, you know, I got to aim here and as things got wetter, I kept having to aim higher and higher. But the problem is, you know, looking back on it, I would have aimed higher, like a little more aggressively right away, but it was like, okay, that's an eight low. I'll aim two rings higher. And as it got wetter, I was like eight low again type thing. So I kept shooting the low arrows instead of making that big jump, which you tend to sometimes be afraid to do. Because, you know, I have done it in rainstorms before, and, you know, it was overachieving <laughs> so you know it's sometimes it's like rain and wind it's a guessing game you know sometimes you guess it right sometimes you can't guess anything right sure so. well and then you know let's let's look at another example of a of a tournament where the conditions were really difficult and that is 2004 um you know yeah. that was the windiest olympic venue i have seen and maybe you've seen and no question that the wind had an enormous impact on that round. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, again, similar situation. You're, you got to figure out what's happening very quickly. You can't afford to lose too many points. You're up against Ron Vanderhoff in this case. And, uh, it was a round of 64 that you were shooting. Um, what do you do in that situation? when you get out there? Well, that was, like you said, that was the toughest win because as you remember, the stadium was a, like a big horseshoe and you would be pushing against the wind, say hitting you from the left side and you'd be pushing that way, trying to fight the wind to get the site near you want. And all of a sudden the wind would like ricochet off the other side of the stadium and be blowing right to left and set left to right and blow you right off bail. Yeah. And we're I talking mean, 30 mile was, an hour gusts. Well, actually, I think it was 40. They were saying, if they it, actually canceled sailing that day and cycling because it was too windy. Yeah, we we know it didn't quite hit forty because the you know the big screen in that stadium was actually yep. um, you know as you know it came out of a truck, 
and it actually had sensors on it. And if it did hit 40, the thing would have automatically uh, stowed itself back in the truck. Because, oh, really? yeah. So we know that it couldn't have gone over 40, but for sure it was between 30 and 40. And, uh, and it yeah. was a real concern. Now, yeah, you know, and looking is... back, I mean, I learned something actually quite a while after in my equipment. Um, yeah. I was shooting a biter stabilizer at the time, and that was probably the worst stabilizer for that conditions you could have. Well, because it's got yeah. more effective surface area. Right. Great stabilizer, absorbs vibration well, feels good, but in the wind, there's too much surface area. And I never realized it took me years before I just tried a different stabilizer and was I got in the windy conditions, and I'm like, I'm not having hardly any trouble holding on the target like I normally do. Yeah. And put two and two together, you know, but. You know, what's interesting but, is I, I think in general, very general terms, people didn't consider wind effect on stabilizers um, until. Like they do these days. Right. Yep. And, and, and I think I have to give credit to Hoyt for kind of bringing that up as a big thing, you know, with the carbon blade design. The blade stabilizer, yep. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, we're selling the contour stabilizer, same idea, same principle as, as, uh, as that for reducing the wind and Doinker's got that small diameter stabilizer and, you know, now it's, now it's more of a, more of a consideration, but back then, I don't think anybody really thought about it a whole lot. Right. It's definitely it's just, noticeable. You know, I, I, I didn't think about it. I would have switched stabilizers much earlier. It was definitely, it was very difficult in the wind for me a lot of times, but. Yeah. It might be one reason why you don't see those stabilizers very much now that particular model yeah but um so you know going back to 2000 sydney um another successful event from the standpoint of uh of a medal uh the team medal again um and and that's not to not to just talk about the olympics you know you won a team medal at the world championships in 1999 pan american games in 99 um and also uh that's that's two pan american gold medals uh, individual silver medal um, in the Pan Am Games in 95, uh, and a bronze medal individually. So, you know, you're looking at uh, a heck of a record. And, you know, obviously we focus on the Olympics, but uh, people don't remember necessarily that, that all the stuff that you did, um, you know, outside of that, um, you know, with the Pan Am Games and, and of course, U.S. Nationals and, and everything else. So, you know, just uh, a well all-around high achiever um let's talk about sydney just a little bit that was an unusual one because it was um later in the year from our point of view springtime down there and uh late fall for us up here and um not particularly warm first games i've ever seen where the uniforms involved quilted you know jackets and stuff (laughs) yeah it was some cool weather especially the first few days there it did warm up a little bit yes it did any any general thoughts about that one? Well, that was extremely windy too. Yeah. Um, I remember actually, um, it was so windy in practice. I was shooting without a stabilizer. I took the spare counterweight off of my backup bow and put it out in the front because it was so bad, like you know, out there. And when matter of fact, some of the teams didn't even show up at the practice field for a few days because it was so windy. Yeah, the wind was coming off of the uh, water, which was not that far away. Right. And uh, yeah. it seems to me that, uh, you know, uh, just jumping back to 2004, you realize it could have actually been worse because before it got put in the Panathinaiko Stadium, the original plan was to have it on a flat field by the airport, by the old airport in Athens. And uh, yeah. that would have been <laughs> that would have been worse. So, yeah. you know, one of those things. What are you going to do? 
jumping ahead. Yeah, it is what it is. Jumping ahead to uh, 2008 um, in Beijing, and uh, you did really well there. You know, um, there wasn't a medal involved, but uh, you guys, you guys, uh, Brady and and Vic and you uh, did well in the team round, um, and you know it was a pretty strong team from Chinese Taipei that beat you guys. But um, I mean, there you are at your fifth Olympic Games. Why don't you talk about? What that was like, because at that by that point, you know, you were the elder statesman. Yeah, um, well, Vic had been to some, so oh, for sure. You know, we had some experience, and you know, Brady was the rookie on the block. But um, you know, I thought, you know, honestly, I was very disappointed. I figured almost for sure we would have a medal coming out of that because it was a real strong team. But you know, it didn't work out that way. So, I mean. It is what it is again. You know, it's life goes on. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of disappointment in the Olympics for a lot of people. Not too many people have are happy. <laughs> well, you know, there's a, there's a, a difficult step to get there. Hard to make an Olympic team in our country. Think about the Koreans. Imagine, you know, that yep. situation. And then, uh, you know, once you get there, it really comes down to uh, four years for 12 arrows or 18 arrows, you know, and, and it's a hard thing. And if it was easy, it wouldn't yeah. be. It wouldn't be what it is. You know the the thing is that uh, you went out to Im Dong Hyung, um, and I mean he went on to do very well at those games. And of course, as you know, uh, you know he's been so strong all the way through. He's he's sort of the Korean Butch Johnson in a way. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's been around. He's done very well. Yes, no doubt about it. Interestingly, at the 2008 Games, you were actually one of the older athletes on the American team uh, for all sports. I think I might have been the oldest American team. I believe if so. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I, I think yeah. that might be true. There might have been a couple. Yeah, they of thought the... I was a... a lot of people thought I was a coach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are some shooters, uh, not shooters uh, in archery, but in uh, in firearms sports that are older, but not from the U.S. And I believe that there were some equestrian athletes from other countries, but uh, for the U.S. contingent, you were uh, you had that distinction. Um, and again, yep. I'll bet you get that question all the time from reporters: How is it that you're able to do this at this age, or whatever? And I think one of the important things is that the mental game is still strong. Even well, the mental game, though, just the enjoyment of doing it. Like, and I think part of it too. Like, yes, I've had a very long career for archery, but. By changing styles over the years, it kind of reboosted my interest. Uh-huh. I think if I had stayed from one style till I started till now, I probably wouldn't be doing it. And you're not talking but, style within uh-huh. shooting recurve, but you're talking, you know, having shot compound with fingers and compound with release and shooting with right. recurve. It was something new and a new challenge to go after, and then back to recurve again, which was basically kind of like a new challenge all over again. Um, so it just re-enthused me a little bit. Let's uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about equipment for a couple of minutes, if that's okay with you. Sure. Yeah. So one of the things that you're noted for is that you are constantly sort of experimenting with equipment, and uh, and so it gives you a wide range of experience. Um, what, just in general terms, advice do you have for a shooter from the standpoint of what's the most forgiving thing and, and what's the, the best kind of setup from your perspective in general terms? Oof, that's a tough one. Um, 
Well, of course it's a tough one, <laughs> but that's why we're talking. Well, I mean... And I and I do recognize that that changes from time to time. I mean, depending on what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, the setup, It's to me, it's always just more experiment with different materials, different fletchings, different string materials, um, different I, button settings. I do find, you know, though, just that, moving. wouldn't you say you kind of keep it simple to a degree? Yeah, I do. Um, but things like people's, a lot of people don't play with this, say, the plunger enough. It's good to have a backup plunger if you want to do it. But, you know, just changing the center shot. You know, you think your bow's shooting good. And I discovered it years ago. I was shooting the old uh, Cavalier plunger that had the screw-in um, Teflon tip. Uh-huh. And it was getting pretty warm. So I'm like, I'm going to put a new tip on it. kind of time. So I screwed a new tip on it. I screwed it on and I noticed it was a lot longer than the other one yeah so i'm like oh i gotta readjust my center shot but i'm like, yeah i'm just gonna shoot there and see what happens the bow shot better for uh-huh. me and the arrow was pointing to the left quite a bit more and so i'm like okay <laughs> but now since then i've learned it's like you know i think now i don't run them out as far and i think it's improvements on the limbs and stuff like that that have changed Years ago, I definitely ran them out further with the older limbs, but now the newer limbs, they, they shoot better for me in. I think it's just the limbs are more stable, so a little less string paradox. Um, but, you know, I just sit there, I'll do a quarter turn on the button, see what it does to my group. What are you using um, for a tab these you know. days? Are you still using um, one you've designed yourself? Yeah, one I made myself. It's basically a, a modified version of the Cavalier tab. Nothing really fancy about it, just... You know, for me, the way I hold the string and stuff, I just had to change it up a little bit. Yeah. So a plate like Dick Tone's tab and also, uh, are you you using Cordovan now or are you back to hair or? Cordovan again. Yeah. Yeah. Hair's too slippery for me now. I get too far out my fingers and couldn't break the habit. I got (laughs) you. Interesting thing on that finger pot is in 96 was the first year, I think, that they really had good video coverage of the arches and stuff. And I do think, you know, I don't know, but I think they, they study them. People study the videos, of course, but I noticed in 2008 when we we're in China, I'm sitting there. We're in the room watching some of the matches it was an air conditioned room. They had monitors and you could watch the matches. And I would be willing to bet half of the people that third finger was doing almost nothing mm-hmm. at, in Beijing where, you know, in 96, nobody was doing that. Everybody was you know, so, was hard on the string with the third finger. Right. Yeah. Yep. And, and fewer Things people. Changed, yeah, know. well, maybe you had an influence on some of that. No joke. Yeah, I mean, they might see it. Well, he shot pretty good that way. I'll give it a try. <laughs> I, uh, you, you won't remember this, but again, I do. <laughs> I had to shoot against you a couple times at the Olympic trials in 96, uh, actually leading up to oh, 96, I remember. So 95. <laughs> Well, what you don't know is uh, the week before the trials that you and I shot at in San Diego. Was it San Diego or Ohio? It was Ohio. Had to shoot against you in Ohio. And, uh, you know, that was when Frost was on the field. You know, it was October, I think. I had yeah. I had almost cut the tip of my index finger off in an accident. Um, and so I was shooting with that top finger splinted and, and, and nowhere near the string. And then two fingers under. And and darned if I didn't I did know that. darned if I didn't hold you to one point a couple times. <laughs> you still beat me, but it was pretty close a couple times. Well, I'm glad I had that point. So those, yeah, well, 
the point is that the two fingers can work if you have to. <laughs> that was back when we were shooting 18 arrows too, you know, for yeah. for a pass. So uh, yeah, that was uh, that was a little frustrating. I'm like, dang it, <laughs> I lost a bunch again. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people in history that have had the line, I've lost to Butch again. So we should get a T-shirt. You know, we were talking about goals earlier. And um, while I'll probably never have this goal met, but I do find it funny that, you know, sometimes people don't remember who some people are in the sport because they come into the sport and they don't necessarily know the history or don't necessarily know who's who. So you'll, you'll relate to this a little bit. You remember Junior Sizemore. Very talented kid. Yes. So Junior was shooting in the 95 World Championship. Or sorry, shooting in the 95 Olympic Trials, and which happened to be in Atlanta. And I was doing commentary for ESPN uh, for that thing after I got eliminated. And um, we, were, uh, we were listening to Jay Bars tell this story. Junior had come off the line, and, and Jay looked at him and saw that he was a little bit upset. And, and Jay says, what's going on, Junior? And he goes, oh, some guy just beat me. And he goes, who? And Junior points, it's Daryl Pace. Some guy. <laughs> some guy. Yep. So do you ever find yourself in a similar situation? Um, Where maybe some, not some, that I'm aware of, some but I'm youngster sure it doesn't, doesn't know? <laughs> I, I always think that that might be a, a fun thing, you know. If somebody figures out, oh, that was Butch Johnson or, you know, whatever. So it was just a funny story that Jay likes to tell, but it's a true story. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's not a huge number of people who are a legend in our sport, but Butch, you're definitely one of those. Glad to hear it. Well, I just, uh, you know. I don't feel that way. I just, you know, like I said, I'm just doing what I love. So it's, you know, my accomplishments, you know. Even I think I'd still be shooting even if I wasn't as accomplished because I enjoy it. Well, you know, and I think that that inspires people who, um, you know, maybe aren't going to make those accomplishments, maybe aren't going to get to five Olympic games, but seeing you out there and seeing you do what you do and and be the athlete that you are and and have the sportsmanship that you've dis, you know displayed over the years, I think that's inspired a lot of people in our sport. So I want to say thank you, and I, I'm sure I speak on behalf of the people listening to this podcast when I say that. Well, that's glad to hear that, too. <laughs> well, Butch, hey, listen, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, it's been a pleasure, as always, to talk to you. Um, we're going to want to have you back because I know there's going to be a lot more questions that will come up. So, uh, Butch Johnson, archery legend, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, you're very welcome, George. You take care. i got to say I really enjoyed um, the time that I was able to shoot with Butch down at the Olympic Training Center and you know, I've known him as my entire archery career. He's just a fantastic guy. One of my favorite stories I've ever heard heard about Butch, and I didn't hear this from Butch, obviously, but um, he was shooting some tournament. I don't know what. He was winning by so much, 60-plus points, and uh, he was sitting in the chairs behind, you know, in the tent, and the the final end came up. And one of his competitors said, Butch, we've got one more end. And he goes, no, you have one more end. <laughs> He'd already wrapped up number one. He was done. That sounds more like something Jay Bars would say. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's an awesome story. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it doesn't I don't matter. think you can make that up. Well, it right? sounds good, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing you might expect. 
No, you've got one more end. <laughs> you have one more end. <laughs> awesome. Hey, uh, we've got a few listener questions. You want to tackle a few of them? Sure. All right. Um, Jeff is asking, for compound target archery, is it better to shoot a heavy, slow arrow or a fast, light arrow for consistency? I've heard every podcast, oh, you poor guy, and seem to remember Steve saying something about short-draw archers and a disadvantage about slower arrows being in the bow too long and being more susceptible to shooter influence. Hmm. Well, I've never, I'll never commit one way or another to something being true, but there are people who believe that that slower lock time is not favorable. You know, Sergio Pony, Vegas champion, being one of them, he likes to shoot a, a light, fast arrow. Yep, and there are other people who believe that maybe a slower arrow is better because maybe it allows you a little time for correction between firing and and the arrow leaving the bow, which I don't believe is true. Um, I think it just comes down to shoot what groups the best and. You know, there are options for both and options in the middle. For me personally, and I think we're talking indoor archery here, I've always really liked the aluminum arrows just because of the consistency of the product. How do you feel about feathers versus veins for indoor aluminum arrows? Yeah, I've, I've given my opinion on this a few times. I'm always a, a fan of veins because I think they work fine and they're very durable. Uh, feathers obviously work well as well um more expensive and uh, you'll be refletching more frequently uh, jacques is asking if we could do a short comparison of the acg and the ace arrow for recurve use he says he's currently upgrading his equipment and he's torn between these two options and assuming the shafts are correctly spined and all other parts of the arrow are the same shooting will be done in both calm and windy conditions so um you want me to try to tackle this one yeah so, Jacques, I will tell you, it comes down to your budget, honestly. If you can afford to shoot ACEs, shoot ACEs for the conditions you just described. If you can't, shoot ACGs. And I don't mean to be flippant about it, but the advantage of the ACE is you'll get better clearance with fingers and you'll get a little more forgiveness if you ginch a little bit. It's not going to, you know, it's not a miracle worker, but it will be more forgiving than a fully parallel shaft. It costs more. That's the bottom line. Yeah. They're on the street about a hundred bucks more. Uh, you know, my thought is, are you shooting for fun? Are you okay with being recreational? You know, I think if you're purchasing ACGs, you're, you're going pretty far already. I think the ACG is a great arrow for compound shooters and it's a great arrow for recurve shooters at its budget. If it's me, a hundred dollar difference. Yes. It sounds like a lot. It is a lot. I'm not going to discount, you know, the value of a C note, as the kids would say. But in my approach to the sport, hundred bucks over the course of the life of those arrows is virtually nothing compared to what I'll spend on the rest of the sport. You know, pack a lunch to your tournament season, and you'll more than make up for it. Aaron wants to know, Steve, what's the most important part of your practice regimen? Um, oh boy. Honestly, I think it's uh, one, shooting enough arrows to maintain strength, um, and two, trying to find that release execution that, that gives me the best shots. You know. Hey, um, we have one more, one more topic to touch on, and that is 
uh, what's happening with World Archery Congress, and specifically indoor compound archery, uh, and the possible implementation of a uh, fully symmetrical indoor compound target, that is a proportional target, where the 10 and the 9 are proportional, which means the gold is going to be smaller if they proceed with this. And we talked about this about a year ago when I um, you know, got back from uh, an event in Lausanne where they tested some of this stuff. Um, have you had any thoughts about where this, uh, where this is going? No. Did you see where WADA has taken alcohol off the list of banned substances? I did see that, and I saw that World Archery intends to put their own rule in place, which, yeah, I think it's great. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, it's, uh, we've seen it in Vegas where a guy goes and slams a beer before he shoots and take a little bit of the edge off. And, um, you know, I, I think you can't, it's hard to police that at Vegas because you're not drug testing until the very end. Really, in world archery, we're not doing we're not doing it till the end either. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't think there's a room for for that in our sport. So no, I'm kind of surprised. I, I don't know why they took it away. I mean, what what was their point in taking alcohol off? You almost wonder if it was an oversight of some sort or some kind of mistake. Yeah, because is it hard to test for? No, no, an alchemeter is probably the cheapest it's, test there is. Yeah, and it's it's done in a matter of seconds. Because you know your your normal the urinalysis test is three four hundred dollars cost. Really? Yeah, yeah. So when we for anyone who's wondering, when we go do a drug test currently, they open up a box of kits and you select one, and you select a you know a breathalyzer piece and you do a breathalyzer test on the spot. It's done in a matter of seconds. And it's uh, no, it's literally the easiest yeah, test. I don't is. get why they. I don't get why they're taking it away. Why? Why they're saying it's okay? Um, I imagine in curling, people are going to be getting plowed. Possibly, possibly, because that's a drinking game. But they also, their federation also has a uh, option of doing what World Archery is planning to do, which is creating its own rule. Yeah, I guess everybody has that option. Um, what World Archery is saying is that they regret the decision from WADA because they feel that all three necessary criteria are fulfilled to ban alcohol in competition. Uh, that is that, you know, it basically gives you an unfair advantage and there are th- specific criteria. It affects your, you know, it affects all, all the aspects of your game yeah. in a positive way up to a certain point, up to a certain <laughs> point. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so what Tom Dillon said is that... Uh, World Archery intends to continue to ban alcohol and will look to adopt the necessary rules at its next executive board meeting, which is coming up on the 12th of October. And he says, uh, we hope that at the national level, this will increase the number of tests for alcohol since in the past some national anti-doping agencies have refused to test for the substance. And we know that uh, Bruce Cull, uh, in the context of the Vegas shoot, has committed verbally at least to uh, to enforcing uh, some of the same rules as World Archery has from the standpoint of doping control. Mm-hmm. On, a, on a, at least whatever level they can get get to right. on the NFAA level. Yeah. So you know this is this is not a carte blanche to uh, slam a bud before you go and uh, and shoot in tournaments. Yeah, it's it just it's strange to me. It is it strange. Was, I agree. I, I want to know why they chose to leave that off. You know, was there some specific minute reason that made sense that we don't know about? I don't know. 
don't know and I don't know that I care. You know, and these are board decisions and, you know, on these boards are experts and we're, no, we're certainly no experts in this area. But, but Tom Dillon is, by the way. Tom used to run WADA. So, you know, he, mm. he has a perspective that uh, may outweigh, well, certainly outweighs ours and may outweigh some of the people who are responsible for this decision as well. So who, who is voting in Congress? Who's our, in the U.S., who's our rep? Um, I'm thinking it might be Greg Easton as an executive board member. I'm pretty sure that there's at least one other. Who is on the rules committee? Good question. I guess that's something we could look up. They've got, uh, they got delegates to the Congress that go there, and some of them can vote and some of them don't. And I'm pretty sure our chairman of the board right now is Rod Menzer. That'll probably be the, uh, the voting delegate. Is that right? I think so, yes. Yeah. So um, clearly uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's being looked at, interpretations to the rules, um, even addressing stuff like uh, there's one thing that's coming up, an interpretation is to the gender classes now because, you know, this whole tra transgender thing is becoming a, a big social discussion point and um so they are you know looking at uh, you know reassignment as it were um for how it affects things so there's there's that subject coming up we have a lot of people being elected to different positions um you know there's uh, athletes on the athlete committee some of whom are up for election or re-election People like Ojin Hyuk and Ivana Budin and Rio Wild and Victoria Caval, um, they were elected um, back in Copenhagen. Some of those positions are coming up. There's committee stuff that's going on. There's uh, permanent committees. I mean, it's a very complicated thing, World Archery Congress. The, the agenda alone is like three pages. There's a whole lot of stuff. So uh, what we'll do is after the World Championships, uh, we will go in-depth into any changes that have taken place in the rules or any initiatives that have come from World Archery. And in the meantime, if you want to get yourself educated with uh, what is on the agenda, on the books for World Archery, two things. One, we'll have a discussion with Tom Dillon in the near future, the Secretary General of World Archery. And two, you can go to archery.org, which is the World Archery website, and uh, in the search terms, just hit Congress, and you'll find everything you wanted to know about what's about to happen uh, at the World Archery Congress that will just precede the World Championship in Mexico City. Ton of stuff. In my mind, the big one on this uh, whole list of stuff to be voted on is the elimination of the world indoor. That is on here. Yeah. And it would be replaced with a new event. 18-meter archery world series final shall be held every year. Archery world series final is what they're calling it. So what is that? The 18-meter archery world series final shall consist of an indoor match round in each category. Um, and so they're saying the number and location of 18-meter world archery series events shall be published in world archery calendar at least three months before the first event. The 18-meter archery World Series event qualification will be an 18-meter round with the approval of World Archery. The elimination round shall consist of an indoor match round or any other type of round as determined by the organizer with the approval of World Archery. Athletes will be awarded ranking points according to their final ranking position after the elimination round. There will be a table of points that will be published 
on the World Archery website at least three months before the first event. So they got to go through one year of this first, obviously. And then athletes will be ranked on the total of all points gathered through the World Archery Series. You'll have to go to two events. The best 16 athletes in each open division will qualify for the 18-meter Archery World Series Final. So it's the Indoor World Cup, as yes, we know Yes, it. but it's now called the Archery World Series. Okay. And the elimination round shall consist of an indoor round, an indoor match round. Um, in a tie, you'll have a shoot-off before the thing starts. Vertical triple face is required. The uh, thing will cover women's world champion, men's world champion, master women's world champion, and a master men's world champion. And all of the um, the team stuff for the juniors is being eliminated, and the team stuff for the men and women is being eliminated. So they've got a junior, a woman, and a master category for this. Um, and they are using the face for what looks like the same face right now. The reference to the 18-meter World Series and final is calling out the uh, the the so-called new face, you know, the, the symmetrical mm-hmm. face. Um, so all of this is big one fell swoop thing, you know. And the reason it's giving, the official reason, the World Indoor Championship is no longer in balance between participation levels and requirements to host and suitable facilities and the level of competition from the World Indoor World Cup circuit is certainly at a world championship level, if not higher. Uh, and the figures are showing a decrease in participation for the last four World Archery Indoor Championships. So it looks like uh, Yankton, which is going to follow Vegas, will be the last World Indoor, per se. Yeah, this is, I don't know. Which is a biennial it, event. Until they break it out and show a schedule and how it's actually going to work, I'm not. I have no no opinion of it. It sounds like it's the Indoor World Cup with a new name, yep. and they've added juniors and masters, and they're going to allocate points maybe slightly differently, and maybe offer a few more events in other areas of the globe. I don't know. So yeah, that's why uh, they're calling it the Archery World Series to make a clear distinction with the Outdoor World yeah, Cup. Yeah. My schedule is already full enough that I don't see it changing from what it is now. It's just going to be called something different. The other factor here is the changes in the schedule for the World Archery Youth Championships. Um, there's a big strain on the on the budget and the calendar. There's you got to figure with the calendar situation the way it's been in the last couple of years. It's mm-hmm. just, there's just no more space. Yeah. It, you know, when you think the, the season's coming to an end, I talked to Dean Alberga, said, hey, you know, almost done World Cup four, and now we've just got the final and world championships. And he's like, no, I've got World Cup four, the World Cup final. He's in Argentina as para, we speak. Para world championships, junior world championships, yep. and then senior world championships. I mean, yep. they had more at the end of the year than they did in the meat of the season. Right. Yeah, he had yeah, to, he had was... to go to Beijing for the uh, for the Para World Championship. The Junior World Championship is happening in Argentina right now, as we record this. Yeah. And then you know everybody's going to Mexico. I wonder if they could move the juniors to a, an even year. I don't know. It it creates a conflict with the Olympics and whatnot, but you know it may it may work out. I don't know. It's crazy. We're I mean if you if you compete 
for a living, you're on the road 30 weeks out of the year, minimum. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a ton of other stuff that's coming up. Um, maybe uh, if we have time, we'll do another podcast before the World Championship. Probably not, but uh, if there is time, we'll cover some of the other interesting and controversial aspects of the changes coming up in world archery. So It might be best if I pull a LeBron James maintain radio silence till the end of the playoffs mm-hmm. and... <clears throat> just worry about prepping myself there'll be a lot to talk about after okay all right i think that's a good plan it's fair for now it's a fair plan we can uh we can get other people i'll, I'll see if i can yeah, get, you can get some other folks i'll see if i can get dug to weigh in on some of this i'm not exciting anyways uh, <laughs> i'm telling you people listen because they like the uh they like the steve anderson attitude well i've got an opinion but i'm always open to uh I, th- I think if someone tells me I'm wrong and explains why, I'll go, okay, that makes sense. Uh-huh. But certainly whenever something – the problem with this is when new things get presented, they always need some refinement. And often they have to be approved or disapproved on the spot. It's like, well, hey, let's uh, refine it. Let's talk about this. Let's see if this would work if we did these tweaks. And then let's let's see if uh, if we can get this approved or not. So – I don't know. Maybe things need to be, maybe there needs to be a semi-annual meeting where things are first proposed and then a a Congress where things are voted on. I'll tell you one other thing that um, is going to generate some agita. When you look at the uh, rules for the new indoor target, they're also eliminating the 40 centimeter single spot for recurve. Mm. So, yeah, that becomes a whole new can of worms. So the the recurve indoor face would remain the same as it is, though. Yes, but you know how it is with a lot of folks at Vegas, for example, liking to shoot that big one spot yeah. with three arrows instead of the individual spots. Right. Now, now I'm not saying this is for Vegas, but now the only target for recurve for indoor recurve will be the three spot Hmm. no more yeah so we'll see well i mean let's just make this easy to make sure everybody always has the right target at their tournament because that has been an issue before where you show up at a tournament and they don't have the right ones let's just uh go with what i proposed move the scoring ring in yeah and and everybody uses the same target yeah not gonna happen i don't think I no, think because go they're, ahead with they're pretty. They're pretty excited. This is already. This. this is already laid out, man. This yeah, is this, this is a fait accompli. If uh, unless there's some big reason that we didn't think of, or you know, uh, smarter people than us didn't think of to not do it that way. There's a bunch of other stuff involving field rounds and invo- just like I said, go to World Archery's website. This is fifty uh, something page. Oh, sorry, it's eighty seven. No, it's uh, seventy five pages. Seventy five pages of stuff yeah, that they're going to vote right? on. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to shoot what's put in front of me. The The whole idea for me will still be the same. Shoot the middle, right? Right. So, okay, that's all I needed to know. Okay. I, you know, and my, my uh, I can, I can give my opinion, which I do and I will, and it may change things. It may not in the end, if I feel like it's worth participating, I'm still going to participate. If not, you know, I but, don't know. But that is the bottom line, isn't it? Shoot the middle. In the end, yeah, it's always it's always pretty much the goal, except in 3D, where sometimes you want to shoot 
you might you might say you're shooting at five or seven o'clock, but really it's the middle, right? Middle of something. It's just the middle has moved. Well, okay. So except in rubber deer. Except in rubber deer, shoot the middle. End of show. I suppose. End of show.